Some of you people haven't been here for a while, or maybe you're brand new. Uh, my name's Mark. I'm the associate pastor here. John is at a conference of Mexican leaders in South Mexico, where it's a billion degrees and a thousand percent humidity. <laughs> and I'm sitting here in air-conditioned comfort. Isn't God good? All right, we're in a series in the book of Acts, and uh, it's going on and on. This is the longest series we've ever done because we're doing a chapter a week, and there's a lot of chapters in the book of Acts. How many years uh, does the book of Acts cover in church history? Does anyone know? How many years from the beginning, the day of Pentecost, on until Paul's last moments in Rome? How many years does it cover? It's more than 30 No, it's not 40. 120. (laughs) Francisco, you're hilarious. It's, it's, I can't remember. It's over 30. Hey, what do you want? You want a perfect pastor or you do want a pastor who's real? I'm a loser. John's somewhere else. You're getting the second string. Suck it up, people. You'll get over it. It's over 30. It's over 30, I think it is. Can you imagine what we read the book of Acts and we compress it into what? Maybe two days of reading or something. We have this idea that it all happens overnight. Maybe we think it takes a couple of months and it takes years. It took years for the grace message to penetrate the early church. In fact, at the end, when Paul was ready to die, his contribution wasn't complete. There was still a fight between the the Judaizers and the people that understood Christianity as a relationship, not a religion. And, you know, honestly, that struggle goes on till today. We're constantly coming to a new understanding of who we are as Christians, a non-religious understanding of who we are as Christians. So let me pick this up. This is uh, Acts part 21. We're in chapter 20. And I call this uh, message Raising the Dead and Saying Goodbye, because these are the two principal things that happen in this chapter. Uh, Last time I talked, I think two weeks ago, uh, we summarized Paul's two years in Ephesus. Now, it ended with a riot because his teaching threatened the economy of the false god of industry, money, in the city. It was a city dedicated to the goddess Artemis, and um, they had a silver business that created little trinkets and things. More than trinkets, they they had religious meaning to the people, but they made a lot of money for the guys that produced these little things. So when Paul attacked their false god, and he did attack their false god, the uh, guild of craftsmen who made these little trinkets accused Paul of attacking their God, and saying that their God was a false God. Paul was attacking their false God. Everywhere Paul went, he attacked false gods. Paul was never willing to back down from a confrontation with false gods. It got him into trouble everywhere he went. So they kicked him out of town. Actually, he ran, which was smart. They were going to kill him, and he left. In our Western culture, what is our principal false god? 
materialism and money. Nothing's changed. It's been close to 2,000 years. He, he hits the nerve of their finances, and they go crazy and want to kill him. People, we are as devoted to our finances as they were devoted to their false little trinkets. In the Western world, money and material things, stuff, is our principal distraction from a relationship with God. Same then, same now. And a riot ensues and Paul has to leave. Next he goes to Greece. Now he's intending to go to Syria, but he discovered a plot by the Jewish leaders to kill him, so he left by another route. Why did they want to kill him? Was their issue money? No. What was their issue with Paul? How was Paul threatening them to the extent that they actually had a plot to kill him? Yes, but expanded a little bit. Sure, he was taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were dogs. The Gentiles were trash. The, talk about racism. This was religiousism. Anybody but us is trash. And who is he to take this message to these people? But it's more than that. It's not just that they're untouchables. It's the nature of Paul's message that is threatening to them. What is the nature of Paul's... Oh, let me rephrase it this way. Paul's attacking another false god. They're representatives of the false god. What is the false god that they are representatives of? Yeah, well, close. Yes. Exactly. They're the false gods of righteousness through works. That's their business. That's what they're in. The only way to come to God is by keeping the rituals and the rules. And we are the keepers of the rituals and the rules. We are the interpreters of the rituals and the rules. They are maintaining their position of control in their false religion. And their false religion's religion. Hello? Their false religion is religion. It is the understanding that you come to God through your works and we'll tell you whether you're succeeding or not. And Paul comes along with the outrageous, absolutely criminal idea that Jesus' death on the cross has set people free from a performance orientation to their life. It was a false God then, and it is a false God now. Nothing has changed. There will always be a great divide between all of the world's religions and true Christianity, because true Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. And it cuts right at the heart of the core of religion, which is self-righteousness and pride. The reason religion sells is because underneath of it there are two contrary things operating within us. One is shame, and religion uses shame to control people. And the other, oddly, is the opposite of shame, which is pride. 
You see, if you're doing well under religion, you're keeping the rules, you're in a good month or two, you're in a good week, you haven't done anything really horrible, you can feel pretty good about yourself. And now you're in that state of pride. Self-righteousness. Or you can be having a very bad week, know that you're a loser, your conscience is speaking truth to you, and you are in a state of shame. And you feel so bad, you just want out of it, and you need someone to come along and tell you what to do and how to do it, and then tell you you're doing okay. And that's religion. Paul is the apostle of grace, and religion hates grace because grace sets people free from religious striving and guilt and shame. No striving, no guilt, no shame equals no mechanism for the leaders to use to control the people. Same then, same now. Here's a, here's a test. I thought about this. This is interesting. Here's a test for whether or not a person has religion as their false god. Are they under religion? Is that their false god? Here's the test. If they treat you as an enemy when you differ with their faith, they are under religion. Isn't that interesting? That just kind of came to me. If they treat you as an enemy when you differ in some way with their faith, they're under religion. I was here in the worship 20 minutes ago. Oh, man. Did you ever find you're having judgmental thoughts in your heart? <laughs> Do you find that you don't think at all and you're an insentient being, you're a houseplant, and so you never have judgmental thoughts? That's what I thought. I cope with judgmental thoughts. I judge people. And I'm sitting there singing this song and something about God's love and the lyrics really got to me. And just out of the blue, this thought came into my mind, very strong. I didn't call you to judge people. I just called you to love them. And I knew Immediately. This is God. He's speaking to me. And you know, it wasn't harsh and it wasn't nasty and it wasn't slapping me down. It was just a statement of fact. I didn't call you to judge people. You don't have to do that. Just love them. I mean, that was so convicting. I thought, I love your correction. Because it always leaves me better. See, correction under religion leaves you with more shame and no sense of hope to change. When your father corrects you in love, you feel better for it. And you feel you've already changed. Because it changes you.
So Paul leaves Greece, and he's accompanied by seven men from four different places that he's visited. Why the entourage? Well, (laughs) the Jews had a plot to kill Paul. So they're probably there to protect him from the Jewish leaders, but also Paul is carrying with him the offerings that he's collected for the poor in Judea. Isn't this interesting? He's carrying the grace message. They want to kill him. He's carrying money. They want to kill him and take the money. Two false gods joining forces to track Paul down on the road and kill him. So he's got seven good, strong, stout guys from four different places as his bodyguards. At this point, he is under the daily threat of death. It's a daily threat of death. He arrives with this group of people in Troas, and Paul teaches at their Sunday church gathering. He timed the arrival. Actually, he arrived, and he had to stay a couple of days to make the Sunday service. So here's the Sunday service. On the first day of the week, now Luke is writing because Luke joined them. He wasn't with them in, in um, Troas, but he joined them on the way, and now he's with them here. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Hello? I tried to figure out, I didn't have the time to do the research necessary to figure out when they start their Sunday service. But good Lord, people, if, come on, think this through, if they started it in the morning like we do, at, say, 10 o'clock because it's civilized, and he talks until midnight? Yes. Yes, we want to make this sermon breathe and live, so I'm going to be here for 12 hours, and I want you to hang in with me and see if you can. So it's anywhere from, you know, 10 in the morning, 12 o'clock, 14 hours till midnight. But it gets worse. Because he doesn't stop at midnight. He goes on all night. So he could be approaching 24 hours of talking. People, you've got to love to hear your own voice if you can talk constantly for 24 hours and people actually sit there and listen to you. He kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps. I love that, he, I love that Luke, throw, Luke is a scientist. He's a doctor. So little details like, you know, he's thinking, I wonder if the people wonder how we, how we could talk and they could see him. So he throws in the detail. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. I just love those little things he throws in. Seated in a window was a... The room was so full, I'm thinking. I'm seeing it in my mind's eye. I think the the room was so full that a window ledge was a good place to sit. It was probably cooler, too. Seated in a window was a young man named Uchichis who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, I don't know, when when Luke uses the phrase, Paul talked on and on, I wonder if Luke's a little annoyed at this point, too. Like, they didn't have a watch, but I think he's like, come on, Paul, do you have a point? Do you have a point? Let's get to it. Can we go to bed? We've got to leave. We've got to leave first thing in the morning. We can't go to bed when we when we finish this this marathon we're walking to the next town it'll be two days before we get to sleep paul what are you doing 
as Paul, the kid sunk into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. And when he was sound asleep, sitting up in a window, an open window, this would never happen today. The government would have little stickers beside the window saying, sitting in this window while preachers preach for more than 10 hours could be dangerous to your health. You know, on our, on our community, we have, a, we have a gate in our community. And someone was generous enough and thoughtful enough to put this yellow sign with black letters right in the center of the gate. Wait for this. Forcing gate with car could damage car. <laughs> he was a lawyer. Oh, that's so good. Anyway, there was no little warning sign about sitting in windows while listening to long-winded preachers. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now stop whining when I go a little over time. You're still breathing and you haven't fallen over and you're not dead. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. He was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Bold. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. And, you know, greatly. Paul talked on and on. Greatly comforted. Yeah, do you think they just got to see this amazing miracle? You know, I don't know that they saw it. I think the rest of them were asleep, too. And at this point, they just wanted to go to bed. What can we take from this passage? This short passage reveals a level of commitment by Paul and the church that we do not see in our church experience. Can you imagine? He has probably talked straight for 20, maybe 20 hours straight. All day and all through the night. And they have to get up. As soon as he finishes and leaves, they're going to walk to the next place and start the whole thing over again. The people sit and listen the whole time. Here's my question. When we sit here and listen to this kind of commitment, do you find it threatening? That there were people that were so committed to learning and knowing God and being the church that they would stay up all night while this guy talks on and there's a leader so committed that he'll do it all night Where did this kind of commitment go? Because, I mean, honestly, people, we're not like that. We're not even remotely like that. Where did it go? What are our false gods? What are our false gods today that keep us away from commitment? 
Good Lord, it's tragic. There's brain scientists studying the effect of texting, twits, tweets, twerks, twerks, dorks. What we pretend, I'm sorry, I'm on a roll here, but we pretend communication. You know, there was a, uh, used to buy Kellogg's cornflakes when I was a little kid, and you could send away and get a little submarine that would go in the bath. You put baking soda in it, would go down and burp, and then it would come up and go down. And I love that thing. I wanted that so badly. And you had to send in so many box tops or, quote, reasonable facsimiles. And I asked my, my mom, what's a re- I mean, I know the box tops, but what's a reasonable facsimile? And she didn't know, so we went to my dad, who was a lawyer, and he said, something that looks like it but isn't, but close enough you can get away with it. Thank you. I, I needed that. So you tear off the front of the box with the word Kellogg's on it and cornflakes, and you send that with the box stop, and that's like two box stops. Anyway, I got the submarine. But that's not the point. The point is that we were designed for a certain kind of communication. It's called face to fricking face. Okay? It's like my eyes look into your eyes and something happens between us as we speak, which is an actual good thing. It leads to something we call friendship. I have more friends on Facebook that I've never met. What an oxymoron. I have friends on Facebook I've never met. Why do I call them friends? We don't have a relationship. I've never looked into their eyes. I, I, you know, they send me pictures of the food they eat, which I find really annoying because I'm on a diet. It's driving me crazy. I'm seeing all this food I want. So that even, a friend will not send you pictures of food you're not allowed to eat. That is not friendship. That is bad. Stop sending me ribs and beef and stuff like that. Send me lentils and, and lettuce photos. So this, this whole instant communication thing, this whole smartphone thing, it's not smart. Brain scientists say that our ability to concentrate and hold information is dropping quickly with the use of these things. We don't think anymore. We merely react. What else? What are, what are, what are the things in our lives that keep us from the kind of commitment that hungers after God I mean, you said a bunch of them. Say them again. Comfort. Comfort. Absolutely. What else? TV and entertainment. Selfishness. All the things that God said I would be for you, we found substitutes for him. In our culture. And they're reasonable facsimiles. Hello? They're, they're, they, they, they promise the stuff God promises, only they're not God. But they're far more readily available. God said, if you seek me, you will find me. 
The government says, if you vote for me, I'll give it all to you and deliver it to your door. So why seek after God for these things when a false God, the government, is providing it to us? Reasonable facsimiles. But guys, what's the consequence for us? What's the consequence? What's the consequence of taking these reasonable facsimiles and saying they're enough for me? What's, what happens to the relationship? Nothing. Nothing happens to the relationship. Well, actually, it just well it deteriorates. Because every reasonable facsimile is, is, is one more moment not seeking the Lord. And you stack enough of them up and, hey, I don't, I, I don't have time to seek the Lord. So at that point, religion becomes a great substitute. I just do a drive-by. I slot so many minutes to something religious like going to church. And I say, if I do that, that will be effective and I will have God in my life, but you don't really. You have a little bit of church in your life, but the church isn't God. Coming to church is no substitute for a relationship with God. Coming to church could get in the way of your relationship with God. You let it. You don't understand the purpose of church. So Paul leaves Trust for Jerusalem on the way he stops at Miletus. Miletus is 30 miles south of Ephesus, where Paul has spent two years. So Paul sends for the Ephesian elders to come and say goodbye because he doubts he will ever see them again. This is a deathbed kind of thing. He doesn't think, he actually does see them one more time, but only briefly. But in his mind here, he's never going to see them again. He has been warned everywhere he goes by the Holy Spirit, that he's going into serious trouble. And in fact, in a moment, a prophet warns him he's, he's going to go to jail. And, uh, and yet, Paul keeps on going. So Paul brings the Ephesians el- Ephesian elders together, and he, he, he says what he needs to say to them. Because he doubts he's ever going to see them again. Here's the summary, because it's a long passage and we don't have time to put it up. But here's the summary of his parting words. Number one, you know how I have lived with you. I have served the Lord with great humility and tears. The whole time I was severely tested by the plots of the Jewish leaders. He's saying, I've been faithful to you and I haven't done it out of pride. I've done it with a humble heart. And a broken heart for you much of the time. Number two, he says, I've never hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And I've preached to Jews and Gentiles alike that they must repent and accept Jesus as the way to salvation. This is a way of saying, I've preached the grace message to you over and over again because you have to get it. He's contrasting his message with the message of false religion. Jesus is the way, and you've got to repent and accept him. There is no other way to earn your way to heaven. Number three, he says this. Now, this is so fascinating to me. Everywhere I go, I'm warned by the Holy Spirit that prison and hardships await me. 
Everywhere I go, I'm warned by the Holy Spirit through direct revelation to his own mind and through prophetic words from others. He's being told, you are going to jail. But I am going to Jerusalem. This is the place of maximum risk. But I'm going to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is compelling me to go. Duh. What the? What the heck's going on here? Everywhere he goes, the Holy Spirit says, you're, you know, you're really bad, really bad, really bad. Look out, really bad. And then the Holy Spirit says, go into the bad. Why is the Holy Spirit warning him on the one hand and leading him into trouble on the other? Why? Preparation. And look, they're friends. Your nose is broken. I need to fix it. This is going to hurt a lot. This is going to hurt a lot. But, but this is the purpose of your life. This is who you are. This is what you're made for. It's going to hurt a lot. The promise you never see in your fridge. The promise from Jesus you never see on a human fridge. In this life, you will have trouble. You always see 10,000 will fall on your left and 1,000 will fall on your right, but you will be fine. And you see, you will be rich and, and have many things. You see all these promises, but you never see the promise in this life you will have trouble. The Holy Spirit's not going to lie to you. He says to Paul, you're going into trouble. It'll probably kill you. Now go. But you're not going alone because we're discussing it now ahead of time. So you know when it starts to unfold, I'm there with you. And this is part of your purpose. This is who you are. This is the call that's on your life. It's going to be ultimately okay. And this is how Paul reasons it through after the Holy Spirit has warned him and sent him into trouble. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This message is Paul's life message, and he will die speaking it. Do you have a purpose worth dying for? Do you have a message in your heart worth dying for? Because if you don't, God will give you one if you ask. But you have to seek him for it. We should all have something in our hearts that's worth dying for. And if you ask him, he'll give it to you. I know I will never see you again. Therefore, I declare that no one's blood is on my hands because I have not hesitated to teach you the whole will of God. You're the leaders of God's church. So you need to keep watch over yourselves and your flock 
Because once I leave, savage wolves are going to come. Some are going to rise up from amongst you to distort the truth in order to draw people away to themselves. Be on your guard. I've never been greedy for your money. I've always supported myself. By my example, I've shown you that you need to always help the weak amongst you. There's two words that sum up what we see of Paul in this chapter, integrity and commitment. He loves the truth and he won't back off. He's radically and completely committed. He's transparent and real with his brothers and sisters. He's humble and he's honest. He's never held the truth back, even when telling it brings persecution on himself. He's not afraid to preach the hard truth. He knows he's probably going to end up in jail or dead, but he goes forward by the leading of the Holy Spirit into the one place where he is in the most danger. He puts completing God's work ahead of his own survival. He warns them about the number one false god they must contend with, the religious spirit that God dominates and governs the Jewish leaders and their false religion. He argues for vigilance in protecting the message of grace that has freed them from the bondage to religion. Okay, I want you to pretend something. Just close your eyes right now, if you would. Pretend that I'm speaking my last message to you and that I want to warn you about the false gods in your life. I want to warn you about your own false gods. Take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit. What would you be warning me about through my pastor today? Father, show me what my false gods are. Yeah, we think so. What would he say? What did, what did he warn you about? What's the false God you have to contend with? I'm, I'm asking. Nobody wants to share? That bad? Pardon? Self-focus? Pride? That's honest. Hmm? Comfort? Yeah. Here in the land of comfort. What else? Gain. Anything else? Is it possible we don't have a false God? Um, 
maybe. I can only judge me. Okay, let me rephrase it. If you were attempt if you were being tempted to a false god, which false god would you be tempted to? By Where's your weakness? Self-righteousness. It's another form of pride, right? Guys, listen, I know this isn't a feel-good message. I get that this one will never make it to your fridge. Yeah, we need a feel-good message. But look, listen, guys, if we don't know ourselves, our weaknesses as well as our strengths, we cannot judge ourselves with sober minds like Paul says in Romans. We, we can't judge ourselves if we don't know ourselves. And if we're not willing to ask ourselves hard questions, then we're deluded. And you don't grow and you're deluded. Deluded people don't grow. They just stay the same or get worse. Usually they get worse. And self-delusion is the greatest delusion of all. We've got to know what our false gods are. We've got to know, what the, we've got to know the enemy's tactics against me. Me. I don't need to know the enemy's tactics against you. You need to know the enemy's tactics against you. I just need to know for me. Asking ourselves this question every once in a while is a really smart thing to do. You know, in order to be a Christian. Yeah, please. I thought a lot about that verse, the patterns of this world. And uh, I thought, what makes the world work? Not God's world. I mean, the world, you know, the bad world, the world. What's the nature? If you can boil it right down, boil the principles of the world down to one principle, one sentence, what would it be? Here's the one I came up with. What's in it for me? That's what makes the world work. It's the entire structure of the world. What's in it for me? Yeah, that's one part of what's in it for me is hedonism. But look, if you boil Christianity down to one sentence with a question mark at the end of it, what would it be? What's in it for God? It's not about me. It's exactly the opposite of what the world says. You, could, you can put it many ways. You could say, what's in it for God? 
But here's, here's a more practical one, because God, what's in it for God? You can kind of sentimentalize that and turn it into nice feelings that he and I have in worship and pretend that I'm loving him greatly because I've ha- I'm having an emotional experience. How about this? What's in it for others? What's in it for others? How about that for a life purpose? What's in it for someone other than me that I run across every day? That would be something. That would be powerful. That guiding principle alone would get you so close to God so fast. The false God I have to contend with is me. That's my false God, me. My self-focus, which is almost limitless. There are only moments when I'm distracted from myself. And those are the freest, best moments of my life. Are you much different? I don't think so. It's our nature. Okay. That was horrible. sure we can do better next week you're welcome but listen here's the deal you sat through all that you survived you get a t-shirt i survived mark's teaching and not only do you get a t-shirt you get a free lunch rachel stand up this was rachel's last sunday singing with us she's going off to school she's getting married next weekend and she's going off to school Twelve more hours? I can do that. Let's just bring the food in here and we'll do 14 more hours. We have to take a break. Okay, guys, please ponder these things. Ask yourself about your false God. Yeah. Did you get Jerry's question? Did you hear it? Okay, the answer is really simple. It isn't a matter of what career he calls you or doesn't call you to. It's how you live in that career. Do I have time for the person right in front of me right now to communicate love to them and make this moment about them and not about me? Guys, it comes down to how you treat the checkout person at Albertsons. Do you bring joy into people's lives? Do you bring peace into people's lives? Do you bring the fruits of the Spirit into the people's lives who you come across daily? It might be a two-second interaction. It might be a one-hour interaction. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter who they are or how long you're with them. Can you stop focusing on yourself long enough to give them a taste of God's love? Just a taste. Free samples. Costco. I should know. I eat lunch. Never mind. Can we just give them? It doesn't. See, we, we, we make it way too complicated. You know, I've got to have the right job in order to please the Lord. No, you don't. 
It's not about the work or the family. Love the family. Love the people you work with. Love every person you come across. Try to bring God's character into everything that you do. And the best way to do that is to forget about yourself and figure I'm a servant. I'm just here to help other people. I'm a messenger of something good. I want to leave, I want, I'm a value added agent. I want to leave them better than I found them with something from God. If we do that, it doesn't matter what we do for a living or where we live or what car we drive or anything else. That's the only ethical question that matters. Am I bringing love to the people around me or am I self-centered? And I want to repent of my self-centered moments. And I want God to convict me when I'm being self-centered. And I want the power to overcome my self-centered nature. And I'm going to try to do it until I die. And that ought to be a well-lived Christian life. No matter whether you are a garbage collector or the president, it doesn't matter. It matters how you love the people you're with. And if you're married, starting with your wife and your children, that's the number one responsibility. And then in concentric circles of influence from the core outward. And you can't do it without a life spent with some time with God every day. If you are not in his presence long enough to acquire more of his blessing, more of his character and nature, more of his spirit, you won't have anything to give to the people you run across. So you've got to fight with the distractions to cut out enough time to spend enough time with the Lord that he is influencing your personality before you take your personality out into the world. It's so simple. And distraction is a false god. So how are we going to slow down so we can be with him and be influenced by him and be changed enough that we can reflect him and represent him to the world? We're done. Way over time. Let's eat. Why don't you guys... Why don't we, why don't we let this conversation carry on in lunch? And talk about this a little and go a little deeper with one another. Maybe share, this is, my, this is my biggest distraction. Oh yeah, well mine too. Okay. Let's go out, 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 out.